with a quiz. What does Dan Rather, Morley Safer, Carolyn Wyatt, and Nahum have in common? Well, a certain kind of news reporter. The answer, they were all war correspondents. Journalism's toughest job is that of the reporter who goes onto the battlefield embedded with the troops. They travel in armored vehicles. They encounter live combat. They sleep on the battlefield. They eat those vacuum-packed MREs. Chris Reed, a former embedded journalist for NBC, he once spoke of his experience. He said, I cover Congress now. I wear a coat and tie. I go home every night and sleep in a bed. It's safe and secure and a bit too predictable. I'm afraid whatever I cover in the future will never match the adrenaline-induced heart in my throat sense of anticipation I felt while embedded with the U.S. Marines on their march from Kuwait to Baghdad. I imagine that's true. Well, understand the prophet Nahum also reported from a war zone. Nahum was probably never literally in the line of fire. Verse 1 suggests that what he saw was in a vision, but his prophecy reads like an eyewitness observer to a war. In his account, Nahum is ducking arrows. Swords and spears are clanging in his ears. He even writes of the horrors of war. He draws pictures of shields and uniforms and chariots and weapons and troop movements. And when Nineveh falls to the invaders and its army runs for its life, when blood fills the streets and rulers are led away in chains, Nahum is there on sight to remind the Assyrians the reason for their defeat. They had insulted the God of glory and they had made him jealous. The book begins with an introduction in verse 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Nahum lived in the 7th century B.C. An approximate dating of his book would be 630 B.C. He calls his prophecy the burden against Nineveh. This word burden refers to a heavy message. It's a word from God with dramatic implications. There's nothing ho-hum about Nahum. It is a heavy revy indeed. Now, Nahum was born in a town called Elkosh. Its exact whereabouts are uncertain. There are three possibilities. One is a town in Assyria. Another was a small city in the Galilee. And the third was a village near Jerusalem. But wherever Nahum was born, he spent a lot of his time in a town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a quite famous town. In fact, it was later named after him. And this is where Jesus did the lion's share of his ministry. This is where Jesus did most of his miracles. In Kephar Nahum, or the village of Nahum, we know it as Capernaum. Capernaum is where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law when she had that spiking fever. It's where a man with a withered hand stretched it out and was healed on the Sabbath day. It's where a gal who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years 
She realized that she could reach out. There was virtue in Jesus, and she touched the hem of his garment and was healed. This was where he raised Jairus, his daughter, from the dead. Kepharnaum was Jesus' headquarters in the Galilee. It's ironic. The town that saw the Lord's miracles first heard the Lord's burden, the burden of the prophet Nahum. Now, wherever Nahum lived, the focus of his prophecy was elsewhere. His eyes were on the superpower of his day, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Nahum was assigned to cover the fall of its capital, Nineveh. And guess who would have loved to have applied for Nahum's job? You remember? Jonah. Jonah, you're right. For much to Jonah's chagrin, 150 years earlier, Jonah had been the key to Nineveh's revival. He had preached. Nineveh had repented, and God had spared the city. But this was not the outcome that Jonah wanted. He was trying to avoid Nineveh's repentance. Remember, Jonah was a bigot. That's what he was. He hated Assyrians. He figured they'd repent. And he knew God was so good, God's so merciful, he'll probably forgive them and he'll give them another chance. Nineveh was east. He didn't want to see that happen. So Jonah boarded a slow boat headed west. And you know the story. Jonah was intercepted by a storm, tossed into the sea by desperate sailors, and redirected by a hungry whale. He ended up preaching in Nineveh, and true, just what he thought would happen occurred. God, God changed his mind, and God spared the city of Nineveh. In fact, the revival that Jonah sparked was the greatest spiritual awakening of all time. We're told a million-plus people turned from their sin and followed the one true God. But that was a century and a half earlier. This revival didn't last. It died out over a few decades. Assyria reverted back to its idolatrous and barbarous ways, and now Nahum comes to inform everyone that God has said there'll be no more chances for Assyria. Nineveh is set to be destroyed. God will finally judge her evil. Now, Nahum begins his prophecy, verse 2, with three bold words. God is jealous. Now, often when we think of jealousy, we picture a person who's battling their own insecurities, someone with a low self-esteem. This person doesn't feel lovable, and they find it hard to believe that they're loved by others. It's an unwarranted jealousy. This is a personal paranoia. It's a human character flaw, and it has nothing to do with God's jealousy. Remember when Tiger Woods was exposed as a serial adulterer? That's all we heard about for days. It was a major scandal. Mistress after mistress started coming out of the woodwork. He was constantly being mocked and belittled on the late night talk shows. Imagine being his wife. Through no fault of her own, she was humiliated, disgraced, embarrassed and done so in the most public ways. She was angry and she had every right to be. She probably wanted to stick a driver down his throat. 
Here was a woman who was no doubt jealous, but her jealousy wasn't born from some insecurity or some weakness or some paranoia. Just the opposite was true. From all indications, she was a strong woman. She knew she deserved better treatment. How dare anyone dishonor her in such a bold and cavalier way? She had loved this man. She had been faithful to him. She expected his loyalty. Her jealousy was righteous and justified, not evil. Well, welcome to the message of Nahum. For this is God's jealousy. God isn't insecure or weak or paranoid. Our God has no lack or need. God doesn't need you or I, but he loves us. And in a myriad of ways, he's been loyal and faithful and gracious to us. He sacrificed his only son so we could be forgiven. All the other blessings I could mention only pale in comparison. Is there any doubt that God deserves our allegiance? And when he doesn't get it, he is justifiably jealous. You see, God was angry with Assyria. He had decided on divorce, and he now sends Nahum to deliver the paperwork. In chapter 1, Nahum paints a grand and glorious portrait of God. If you think of God as aloof or removed, read carefully. For Nahum portrays God as a God who feels and cares and even hurts, and he isn't afraid to respond justly. The prophet writes, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Did you know that heaven has two warehouses? God has stored up blessings and judgments. In Christ, he has stockpiled every spiritual blessing. But here we're told that he reserves wrath for his enemies. And who are God's enemies? Well, certainly not me, you might say. I've never taken sides against God. My policy is to mind my own business, just stay out of trouble. But understand, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, remember the words of Jesus. He said, he who is not with me is against me. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are his enemy. You can't say, oh, I'm really not for Jesus, but I'm not against him either. No. If you're not living for him, walking with him, you are against him. And here we're told that he has a warehouse of wrath reserved for such people. Of course, verse 3 tempers the thought a bit. He adds, the Lord is slow to anger. You know, even though God is jealous, even though he gets angry with those who are his enemies, he is amazingly patient. In Noah's day, the world grew so wicked that God had only one recourse. Flood it and start over. And yet you remember, he waited 120 years for Noah to build a boat and to preach his word, hoping that the world would repent. Apparently, God's wrath amasses slowly. God never races down a path of judgment. God pauses, God pleads for us to repent. 
And yet don't mistake his patience for approval or apathy. For in the end, the wicked will be judged. Nobody gets off the hook except those who come to the cross. God tolerated the city of Nineveh's sin for 130 years, but there came a point when God's tolerance ran out. Nahum says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord is mighty when he moves. When he moves his feet, his feet kick up the dust. Frank Sinatra might sing, I did it my way. Burger King might say, have it your way. But I'd listen to Nahum if I were you. Buck and kick all you'd like, but in the end, the Lord has his way. Verse 4 says of God, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. Bashan and Carmel are scenic places. You can go there today. The hillsides showcase lush, lush vegetation, and yet God can make it barren in an instant. In fact, God's fury reminds Nahum of a volcano. Notice verse 5. The mountains quake before him. The hills, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. One author writes, Nature rumbles and rattles in seismic agitation at the Lord's coming in judgment while supposedly intelligent man remains oblivious. He says, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. You know, I love the Lord. And I am so thankful for his forgiveness. I know that in Christ, I am righteous in his eyes. But you need to know, I don't take his grace for granted. For if God wanted to hurt me, that's his choice. Again, remember verse 3. The Lord has his way. I've I've done enough to deserve his wrath, trust me. He's forgiven me because of his mercy and his grace. But it's a gift that we should never take for granted. Hey, rather than hope that God is on your side, make sure that you're on God's side. That's the safe strategy. Submit to God's will and it'll spare you great grief. In doing so, you'll avoid the fierceness of God's anger. Now notice verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and I love this, and he knows those who trust in him. Isn't that great? I love this thought. On a planet crowded with billions of people, God senses the one person who trusts him and reaches out to trust, to touch the hem of his garment. God recognizes that one person. He knows those who trust in him. At Capernaum, Jesus healed a woman because she reached out by faith and touched the hem of his robe. And he'll do it again for you if you reach out to him. You see, the Lord is good. But if we defy him, if we make him jealous, he'll unleash a tidal wave of judgment, he says. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness 
will pursue his enemies. Verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? Now, in Isaiah's day, when Assyria laid siege to Jerusalem, the Assyrian spokesman conspired against the Lord. See, he tried to intimidate God's people with his boasting. This is what he said. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, all the idols of all the nations had feared Assyria. No one had come to any nation's defense. But they had yet to oppose the one true God. And in Isaiah chapter 10, God rebukes the Assyrians. Rather than acknowledge that they were only an instrument in God's hand to bring judgment on the nations, they boasted in themselves. In other words, they conspired against the Lord. And he will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. I'm sure you've heard the expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, anyone can trust another person and get snookered, but only a fool gets conned twice. And this is how God feels. Nineveh played God once, but no more, he says. Next time it's judgment, not mercy. Verse 10, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. Now here God is speaking to Judah, to the Jews. The Jews have been afflicted by Assyria for 150 years. They were in essence a vassal state who paid protection money to Assyria to be left alone. But here God promises to break their bonds and set his people free from this Assyrian domination. This is what he did in the days of Isaiah. When the angel of the Lord came in a night and slaughtered 185,000 of the Assyrians. That night's massacre ends up a major theme in the Old Testament. We've talked about it many times. But here in Nahum's day, Assyria was yet to be conquered. It was still the greatest empire the earth had ever seen. Her kings ruled the world from the Tigris to the Nile, the entire Fertile Crescent. And yet i got to ask you a question. Today, do you know about the Assyrians? How much do you know about the Assyrians? Probably not much. I mean, unless you're a serious Bible student or a Middle East archaeologist, you've probably never heard of the Assyrians before you came in here tonight. And verse 14 tells us why. For the Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Now, that is an ominous thing to hear God say. You don't want to ever hear God say those words. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. God is not someone to be trifled with. 
Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Whoever brought word of a serious demise was a bearer of good news. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum encourages Judah to continue to trust the Lord, to worship him at the appointed times, to keep their feasts, to remain faithful to their God. For the day will come when that messenger will arrive with the news that Assyria has been destroyed. In fact, that news came in 612 B.C. after the joint forces of the Medes and the Babylonians invaded Nineveh and sacked the city. And we'll read about it in chapter 2. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. I mean, as Nahum writes, in your mind, you can see sights. You can hear battle sounds. Commanders are barking orders. Chariots are rumbling through the streets. Drawn swords are clanging. Verse 2. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Now, by this point in history, Assyria was Israel's arch enemy. In 722 B.C., a hundred years earlier, before Nahum, Assyria had sacked Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and they had scattered Israel across the empire. Now, though, God says that he's going to crush and scatter Assyria. What Assyria did to others, now God is going to do to him. We're told the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. Nahum is describing the army that will invade Assyria. Scarlet and red were the battle colors of the Medes. Apparently, ancient armies liked red. You know, why not? Red is the color of intimidation. Like bulldog jerseys on an autumn afternoon, that color red just makes the enemy quake. Of course, red uniforms also conceal the spilling of blood. It camouflages wounds. You know, your bleeding was hid, lest it embolden the enemy if you were wearing red. Which reminds me of a story some of you have heard before. doesn't matter to me. I just love telling it. One day, the first mate on a British battleship, he rushes into the captain's quarters. And he announces, he says, Captain, Captain. There's a Spanish galleon on our port side. The brave captain, he barks out his orders. He says, quick, bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. Well, the next day, the first mate, he runs into the captain's quarters again, and he shouts, captain, captain, there's a Spanish galleon on our starboard bow. He answers, he says, hey, bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. Well, this young sailor, he had to know, captain, why do you always ask for your red vest? The courageous captain, he, he, he told him, he said, well, if I'm ever hit in battle, I don't want my men to see me bleeding and lose heart. And thus, I wear my red vest. The cabin boy, wow, what, what, what a brave captain. Well, the next day, the first mate, he rushes into the cabin and he announces terrible news. He says, captain, captain, you'll never believe it. We're surrounded by the entire Spanish armada. The surprised captain shouts, quick. Bring me my red vest, my brown pants, and man the battle stations. 
I love telling that joke. Verse 3 continues. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Again, Nahum sounds like a war correspondent. He's reporting firsthand from the battlefield. Nahum gives some prophetic play-by-play of Nineveh's fall. He, that is the king of Assyria, remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. Notice that. The gates of the rivers are opened. The ruins of Nineveh are visible even to this day. Just across the river from the modern Iraqi city of Mosul, 250 miles north of Baghdad, The walls of the ancient city stretched eight miles. They rose as high as 60 feet. Two tributaries of the Tigris River flowed under its western walls. Nineveh's 1,800 acres provided for a population of over 300,000 people. It was the great city of its day. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus lived around 20 B.C. Diodorus wrote of the fall of the city of Nineveh. He said that due to abnormal flooding conditions of the Tigris River, the city was flooded and therefore its defenses fell. Nahum confirms this notice in verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened. The two tributaries of the Tigris flowed under the city's walls. And when the river swelled its banks, the flooding washed out a two and a half mile stretch of the wall that surrounded the city. This gaping hole was used by the invaders to enter the city, and Nineveh became easy pickings. It's amazing that God gave to Nahum a detailed prophecy predicting the downfall of the Assyrian capital 20 years before it actually occurred. It's another proof that the book you're holding in your lap tonight is of supernatural origin. Notice again verse 7. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves. In other words, a weak, a pathetic coo, beating their breast. In other words, the city is mourning. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Notice again, Nineveh is like a pool of water. She had been flooded. Everyone had abandoned the city. Nineveh was once this beautiful, refreshing pool around which everyone would gather, an oasis. Now the city's inhabitants are fleeing. They're trying to escape. Verse 9, take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in her every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Again, the secular historian, Diodorus, he wrote of Nineveh's fall. They plundered the spoil of the city, a quantity beyond counting. In all of his descriptions of conquest, how the Assyrians conquest and conquered various cities, this is the only occasion when Diodorus uses this phrase, a quantity beyond counting. Through all her victories... Nineveh had become the richest city on earth, but in the end, the city was looted and pillaged, and all her wealth was gone forever. 
We're told, where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. Now, from here to the end of the book, Nahum is going to use four metaphors to illustrate and to emphasize the significance of the fall of Nineveh. Some teachers have called Nahum the master of the metaphor. You'll see why as we continue. But the four comparisons he draws are that of the lion, the prostitute, the drunk, and the locust. A beast, a brothel, a boozer, and a bug. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lioness, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. See, Assyria had been the king of beasts, the king of beasts among the nations. Like a lion, she had ravaged her prey, but now God's judgment will see to it that this lion is devoured. We're told, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Here's the scariest words that a human being will ever hear. I am against you, says the Lord. But I have a contrast for you tonight. Here God is speaking to those who are in Nineveh. But what does he say to those who are in Christ? Romans 8 verse 31 asks, If God is for us, who can be against us? On your own, attached to this lost world, God is against you. He opposes your plans. He sabotages your schemes. He brings you to the end of your rope. He hopes to wake you up to your need for his son. But once you embrace Jesus, his strategy changes. He is now for you. He intends for you to reflect his glory. The state of California is a place of geographical extremes. Death Valley is the lowest point in the United States at 282 feet below sea level. But just 135 miles up the interstate is enormous Mount Whitney, 14,494 feet above sea level, the highest point in the continental United States. It's interesting that all that separates the highest point on the continent from the lowest point is a two-hour drive. It's all that separates. It's latitude, not altitude, that makes the difference. You understand what I'm saying? And this is true in life. Latitude, not altitude, is what's needed to leave behind a life of sin and begin a relationship with God. Hey, you can go from washed out and ragged out to a citizen of heaven in a single prayer. You can. From the depths of bitterness and guilt and despair and unhappiness to the pinnacle of joy, it's a lateral move. It doesn't happen by moving up, climbing the ladder, doing what, straining and striving to get higher and higher. It's not moving up morally that changes us, but it's moving out spiritually. It's not a climb, it's a shift. I put my trust in Jesus. I look to him. I leave Nineveh or this world and I ally myself with Christ. I go from in Nineveh to in Christ. That makes all the difference. And that's done by faith. Chapter 3 begins. 
Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Assyria was infamously cruel. In fact, it goes down in history for its violence toward its fellow man. These Assyrians were barbarous and bloody and brutal. Nineveh angered God by attacking his image in his fellow man. In the ancient world, Assyrian kings like Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmanazir, not exactly household names today, these names were feared by millions of people. They not only committed shameful atrocities, they bragged of it afterwards. In fact, throughout the ruins of ancient Nineveh, archaeologists have found inscriptions of these brutal boasts made by the Assyrian kings. I want to read to you a few tonight. One of the kings wrote, Many within the border of my own land I flayed and speared their skins upon the walls. In other words, prisoners were skinned alive and their flesh was used as wallpaper. Another man wrote, king wrote, I cut off their heads and formed them into piles. Piles of skulls was an Assyrian trait, calling card. Another king wrote, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. Another, I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who rebelled. Another, from sons I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. Still another, I bound their heads to posts round about the city. These guys were brutal. Assyrian kings like to bury their enemies alive inside the walls of their buildings. Defeated kings were led around on dog collars and housed in kennels. Heightened interrogation tactics were perfected by Assyria. They were the masters of torture. Here was a famous Assyrian practice. A spear was thrust through a man's gut and out the top of his head. And then the other end of the spear was stuck into the ground. The victim was left to squirm in pain until he died. It was like a shish kebab. As a matter of fact, this was the precursor of what was later developed into crucifixion. And here's what all this means to us. God cares not only about how we treat him, but how we treat our fellow man how we treat other people. Every person you come in contact with in the course of your day, male or female, young or old, married or single, black or white, born or unborn, handicapped or whole, straight or gay, rich or poor, jailbird or free bird, Christian or Jew or Muslim or Mormon or Hindu, every human being carries in them at some level the image and likeness of God. And for that reason alone, humans are owed a degree of respect. This is why the notion of human rights is distinctively Christian. Human rights, this doesn't stem from Islam. The Quran refers to Christians and Jews as infidels. Hinduism assigns and enslaves folks to a tiered caste system. Even Judaism treats Gentiles as unclean 
and outside of God's love. Only Christianity acknowledges a common creator. And because we were made in his image, every human is owed certain inalienable rights. And yet sometimes I think we live in the bloody city. When over a million innocent babies die every year, their only crime being conceived in an uncaring wound, how can there not be blood on somebody's hands? The politician or the judge who permitted the abortion, the voter who put that politician into office, the society that doesn't care for the unwed mother who's in trouble, there's blood on somebody's hands. And then there's the violence occurring in our inner cities. Drugs and gangs and guns create a bloody mixture. Nightly, here in Atlanta, someone is slain in our streets. Our city could be called the bloody city. And what about the cycle of domestic abuse that occurs throughout our culture? Causes much of today's violence in our society. Have you ever ignored a situation with a battered friend or an abused child? that you should have reported. It was just easier to walk away instead of getting involved. Don't all of us bear at least some of the blame? Recently, when an 18-year-old gang member in Milwaukee murdered a 15-year-old girl, the boy was quoted as saying, this is going to wreck my whole summer. It's not like she was the president or anything. She was just a girl. Hey, The fathers who raise sons to think that way about women, they have blood on their hands. And what about our own anger? What about your anger and my anger toward our spouse or our boss or our coworker? You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Certainly the consequences of pulling a revolver and putting a few slugs in a guy is more severe than yelling at him in traffic. But the deed is still the seed that was allowed to grow. None of us should get smug and self-righteous. Don't assume that we lack violent tendencies. We just might be too law-abiding. or We might just lack the nerve to bury a blade in somebody's back, yet the same anger can boil in us. Have you ever murdered a boss with cold-blooded gossip? Have you ever stared a hole right through a co-worker or used violent words against your spouse? How close to you and I Live to the bloody city. God will judge the bloody city, and Nahum describes his judgment of Nineveh. He says, The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. God will bring a violent army against Nineveh. And it's not against an innocent city. These people are guilty. And here Nineveh depicts the pandemonium of the siege, the crack of the whip, the snort of the horses, the screams and the moans of suffering, even the crunch of bodies beneath the wheels of the invading chariots. Nahum tells us about them. And here's why this judgment has come. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorcerers, sorceries, 
who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Here, Nahum uses another metaphor. He compares Nineveh to a harlot. She used her military power and the threat of brute force to blackmail the nations around her into worshiping her pantheon of idols. You could say Nineveh was the mafia of the ancient world. With the threat of war, Assyria made the surrounding nations buy protection with their worship of their false gods. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and will say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? See, here's how the ancient world punished a prostitute. Village leaders would lift her skirt over her head and expose her nakedness. She would then be shamefully paraded through the town. People would come out of their houses and they would pelt her with all kinds of filth and mud and so forth. It was a public spectacle. But this is how the nations are going to treat Nineveh and the Assyrians. When they fall, they'll be brought to shame, Nahum says. And here we should note another contrast. Think of that custom, the custom that brought shame on a prostitute. Then think of the way that Jesus treated the woman taken in adultery. What a contrast. The Jews wanted to condemn. They wanted to stone her. Instead, Jesus forgave her. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, rather than throw filth, Jesus threw forgiveness at her and forced the Jews to throw down their rocks. Verse 8. Are you better than no Ammon that was situated by the river that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubim were, her, were your helpers. Now, Nahum compares Nineveh with the Egyptian city of Noaman, or better known in secular history as Thebes. No means the city of Ammon was the Egyptian sun god. This city was dedicated to the sun, the, the literal sun. The ancient city of Thebes was a magnificent city, remote, wealthy, large, well-fortified, it was situated on the Nile River, so it had plenty of water and fertile farmlands. No one would ever dream of Thebes lying in ruins. Yet, Nahum says, she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. The great city of Thebes had suffered greatly. And guess at the hands of who? The Assyrians. The Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, marched through Egypt, setting fire to its villages and crushing the Egyptian army. And in 662 BC, he surrounded Thebes and in short order sacked the city. He knew that he could never rule over a city like this so far from home. So he made an example of Thebes by sentencing its population to slavery, by slaughtering its children in the streets. He wanted to scare the Egyptian cities into submission. 
Who would have thought that the glorious city of Thebes would suffer such incredible devastation? No one. But that's the point God is making. For neither would anyone living at the time believe that Nineveh could also be destroyed. Yet Nahum predicts that God will judge Nineveh and the Assyrians just as the Nineveh and Assyrians had conquered Thebes. Verse 11, you also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. They say this happened on the Saturday night before the Sunday morning when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That many of our American officers had gotten sauced the night before. That's why they weren't vigilant. They woke up the next morning with a hangover. Well, the historian Diodorus says that that's what occurred the night that Nineveh fell to the Medes and the Babylonians. The Assyrian officers were drunk as a skunk that allowed the enemy to invade the city. He says, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. In other words, Nineveh will be ripe for the picking. Surely your people in your midst are women. Pardon this, ladies, but this was an insult. Nahum is saying that the men of Nineveh fight like girls. They all just fight like girls. They're cowards. They're sissies. They're effeminate. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Archaeologists working the ruins of Nineveh have found layers of ash where the city was burned. They've confirmed the scripture. Verse 14, draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. See, the Syrian army had roamed the world like a swarm of locusts, pillaging, eating up the nations, and yet leaving as quickly as they came with their national treasures. But verse 17, your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. See, at night, the cold causes the wings of a locust to grow stiff, keeps them on the ground. But when the morning sun shines, the heat reinvigorates their wings, and they become airborne. He says, your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Their shepherds was a reference to the Assyrian officers, their leaders, their shepherds. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. Recall the old nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Nahum is saying that this nursery rhyme will soon apply to Nineveh. Great will be her fall. Nahum's prediction goes beyond just the fall of Nineveh. He's predicting that Assyria will disappear as a people. The previous verse says that she'll be scattered 
on the mountains and no one will gather her back up again. Listen to the following entry in the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Ancient History. The disappearance of the Assyrian people will always remain a unique and striking phenomenon in ancient history. Other similar kingdoms and empires have indeed passed away, but the people lived on. With the Assyrians, a nation which had existed 2,000 years and had ruled a wide area lost its independent character. The historian marvels, but God predicted it all in advance. Historians are baffled by the disappearance of Nineveh and its people, but it's not hard to figure out. For whenever a person or people love only themselves and care little about how they treat others, God sees to it that they end up defeated and forgotten themselves. Ultimately, how we treat other people determines how we get treated, does it not? Matthew 7 verse 2 says it best. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Nahum saw it in a vision, and God brought it to pass. Father, we thank you.